Our sponsor for this episode is DNABargains.com. Are you finally ready to jump into DNA testing and genetic genealogy? Do you want to make some real progress with your family history research? The choices can be confusing when it comes to selecting the right DNA test. Plus, do you really know how to get the most out of the test results once they come in? Check out the new site, dnabargains.com. It offers solid advice on DNA testing vendors, the latest DNA and genetic genealogy news, plus special coupons and promos to save you money. That's dnabargains.com. Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this May 2017 episode is researching your heritage. And in the news from the blogosphere, editor Diane Haddad is going to kick us off with some heritage museums where you can research your own heritage. And then we'll jump right into our top tips segment to discuss Irish genealogy tips with the author of the new book, Family Tree, Irish Genealogy Guide. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, we're going to dig into a website called Gedboss. It's a German family tree website with Jim Beidler. And in our Family Tree University Crash Course segment, we will talk Scottish research strategies with Vanessa Wieland. And then we'll wrap things up over at the publisher's desk with our own Allison Dolan. There is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the news from the blogosphere with Diane Haddad. In this episode devoted to researching your heritage, I think a really appropriate place to start is with heritage museums. And the Genealogy Insider blogger and editor of Family Tree Magazine, Diane Haddad, is here to take us on a tour. Hi, Diane. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. I I love your recent blog post. It's um, called Overlooked Genealogy Resource Alert, Nine Tips to Research at Heritage Museums. And um, wow, you really pulled together a lot of great info, and it just motivates me to want to go and visit some of these places. Tell folks uh, why they should take a tour of a heritage museum. Well, we um, have an article coming up in the July August Family Tree magazine that's about 11 heritage museums that are must visits um, all around the country, and there's actually a link to it in this blog post. And that sort of showed me what kind of resources are at a lot of these places. A lot of them have libraries where um, focusing on a particular cultural or immigrant group. And I think these are overlooked resources. People, you think about your public library and, you know, ancestry and family search and all that, but you don't often think about these um, kind of smaller cultural or heritage centers. Yeah, that's so true. I was uh, speaking in, I think it was in... um Nebraska, and they had a uh, Germans from Russia Heritage Mm -hmm. Museum. And it it was fascinating. And I thought, wow, who knew that there was something so specific, and yet so rich with 
with history and that you could go in there and really research and, and just soak it all in. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can um, get records specific to that group, such as foreign language newspapers or sometimes church records or histories. And then also you learn about um, settlement patterns for that group and how people lived and what they wore and all that cool stuff that makes it so interesting. So it's a good way also to get research clues. Yes. And in the blog article, you provided some tips, ways to get kind of the most out of your visit. What were some of the the things that you kind of suggest to people to plan ahead? Yes. Well, I think it's important to take a look at the website of the museum and center and just get kind of an idea of what kinds of materials they have and what you might be able to expect um, and also requirements for research. Sometimes you have to call ahead and make an appointment or um, search an online catalog and tell them what records you would like to have pulled. Every place works a little bit differently, so it'll help if you can get an idea of what it's like ahead of time so you don't feel like you're walking into you know, foreign country or something where you yeah. don't know the language. Exactly. And, you know, not only bringing uh, your own materials, but like you say, doing the planning ahead, just to know what all the details are. And I think it's really worth the effort because not only do you get the most out of your time when you're there, but you actually feel more comfortable. You don't, like you say, you don't feel like you're in a a foreign place. You're, you're ready to go and they can tell that you've done your homework. So they're ready to help. Yeah. And one thing that's neat about these places is that they'll often have staff members who are of that heritage group and maybe know the language and can help you understand records that you might've already found, but haven't quite gotten all the clues that you can from that record. Um, So that's something when you call ahead, you'll want to ask about if that's an option. Oh, great idea. All right. Well, you've got to go check out this blog post that uh, Diane put together. So it's Overlooked Genealogy Resource Alert, Nine Tips to Research at Heritage Museums. And we'll have a link in the show notes. And of course, this ties right back over to Family Tree Magazine's roundup of 11 must-see heritage museums. Maybe there's one that you've missed that is just perfect for your family history research. Uh, This is great. Thank you so much, Diane. It's a great way to kick off an episode devoted to our heritage research. You're welcome. Well, in this episode, all about your ethnic heritage, uh, we know a lot of you listening have Irish heritage. And so we just couldn't get through this episode without uh, talking to a resident expert here, somebody with a brand new book on Irish genealogy, and that's Claire Santry. The book is called Family Tree, Irish Genealogy Guide, How to Trace Your Ancestors in Ireland. Welcome to the show, Claire. Hello, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. This book has been a big success so far, and it's something that so many people, particularly here in the U.S., but uh, also we know we have listeners around the world, and there's a lot of people who immigrated from Ireland into other locations, so there's a lot of people yearning to go back and to discover them. Uh, I'd love to have you just start at the beginning. Where is the best place to start with Irish research? Well, a lot of people think they've got to immediately start in Ireland, and that's absolutely wrong. They must start in the U.S., working their way back in the regular fashion, doing all the normal genealogy process back to their immigrant ancestor. Um, Along the way, they will pick up so much information that will be so useful to them. 
when they really, if, if they can get across to Ireland. But they have to find out what religion their ancestors were and absolutely essential where they came from. You have to really narrow down with Irish genealogy because the records are very localised. You can't put in Patrick O'Sullivan and think you're going to come up with your Patrick O'Sullivan. Absolutely. You're looking at lots of different duplicate names. So you're really talking about, I'm assuming, not just the county, but maybe even the village. Yes, it, it, it's actually right down to what they call the townland, oh. which, which is a much smaller area than a village. It might just be one or two fields that has got a couple of houses in it. And by houses, I only mean, for most of us anyway, very poor old, old standard houses. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be a townland. It, there's no standard size for a townland. This hasn't actually been proven, but I believe it was once upon a time the area that could support a cow or two or oh, something wow. of that nature. <laughs> but since then, they have been slightly modified. But still, you can get very tiny townlands and some very, very large ones. The larger they are, often the fewer people live in it. The, the land will usually be of poorer, poorer quality. So mountainsides, for example, might be, uh, you could have quite a large mountain and, and it would be the one townland. But in a village, you might find a much smaller condensed area. Well, that's, but you need to get right down to the townland usually, or at least the parish. Right. And that's so important because uh, here in the U.S., we hear town. So we're envisioning the bigger entity. And so you're really helping us understand that you've got to understand the context of that's where right. you're... Yes, it, it is different. Yeah. So you were saying we start here in the U.S. and we certainly have things like naturalization records and passenger lists and census records. Uh, What's the most important information that we should be looking for that we've got to arm ourselves with before we head over to the Irish records? It's definitely the name of of the townland, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, in the census, all too often, it just says Ireland, 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 Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, just once, you know, now and again, you might find somebody decided to stick in something more, more specific, but generally they don't. So it's naturalization records, the passenger records, if they survive, um, or just other localized, maybe newspaper reports of a death, for example, will often refer to places where they came from originally, um, and other family information. So it sounds like there isn't kind of one go-to record type. It's really a matter of where you're fortunate enough that somebody took the time to maybe be a little more specific. Yes, <laughs> it okay. really is like that. You have to go very wide with Irish genealogy. And right. that's the same even when you get back to Ireland often as well. <laughs> Would it be helpful then if you're, having, if you're you know, kind of striking out with your own ancestor, how about the, the cluster of people around them. Would that be helpful to look into siblings and aunts and uncles? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, that, that is one of the strategies that's in the book um, that's explained in a lot of detail about how to, to go wide, to look at not just the family members that might be nearby or even if they're further away, to still research them, but also just the people locally that they live with, the neighbours and so on. They're often married or, or there are relationships with them which may be familial, or they could be from that they travelled together from Ireland. And oh, right. one, lot, one lot of people may have recorded where that place was. Mm-hmm. 
It only takes one. Even if it is your ancestors, <laughs> it only takes one, and yes. then you're off. <laughs> well, um, I know the the book is absolutely packed with the uh, strategies and details, and like we were saying, the context, the background, so we really know what we're talking about here. What's one of your? Do you have a favorite research strategy or something that you just think will make people's eyes pop? I think the the chapter about names and surnames, first names and surnames, um, they're very personal names. And I think that when when somebody has done a certain amount of research and they've gathered their family names, because they they often uh, repeat the same names from family to family because of the traditional naming pattern, which was still running really up until about the 1930s for most families to some extent. And then when they start to explore those names, they, they find out an awful lot of extra things about their family. But there are also just some big differences between America and uh, Ireland about how they named their children. For example, they very rarely have a second name. Oh, really? So they don't have a middle name, as it, we call it's it? It's really unusual. You might have a Mary Ann or uh, Mary Jane, but apart from those couple of names and maybe a few more uh, names. You just get one name. Wow. So I'm Claire Santry. Now, Mm -hmm. I have a baptismal name, but that's not a legal name. It's Mm -hmm. just a baptismal name. So, and that is probably why they didn't give them a middle name. Um, But but yes, most, even to this day, although it is changing, most people just get the one name. And Um, and of course, those names just keep getting repeated down the generations. So it sounds like it's really the pattern of what you name your firstborn son, your firstborn daughter, that kind of thing, and who you name them after. Ah. Yes, yes. The the first child, the first boy is normally named after the paternal grandfather, and the first girl is named after the maternal grandmother. So it sounds like, and I and I think you probably get into this in the book, is, is you almost have to map it out. It's not going to be real simple. You almost need a kind of a little chart uh, to, <laughs> to kind of build the family. Because I, I imagine with so many duplications of names, what you're really looking at is the, the wider footprint, if you will, of a family and how the names are arranged. That tells you you're with the right family. It does. It definitely does, yes. 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 Oh, well, that's it's never absolute firm proof, but you get a feeling for it in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, this can't be my family. There's a Jeremiah in it. No You're right. <laughs> but if there's a Dennis, it's one of mine. <laughs> well, now give us a taste, finally, as, as we uh, nail down in the first part of the book, some of the things that we'll be needing to be successful. Uh, what are some of the first record sets that we'll get into that we can kind of look forward to? Well, it does very much depend where, when your family arrived in, in America, I mean, mm-hmm. when, or rather when they immigrated, because obviously there's no point looking in the records after they've gone. If your family were not rich, and really, I mean, landed, you know, with serious money, mm-hmm. um, which is where most of us come from, right? <laughs> um, there are very few records before 1800, and that does, of course, cause a problem. But if, if you have family who came over in the first half of the 19th century and you have a location, then you can f- try church records, um, land records, possibly wills, depending on their, their affluence. And they don't always survive for Roman Catholics that early, but some do. 
And this is where it comes down to really potluck in the end. If you are lucky and the parish your family came from had surviving records, regardless of religion, then you can still get back further. But right. for some people that doesn't happen. Right. And there actually is very little can be done about that because the records just don't survive. So we really need a, um, a process to follow to kind of navigate our way through it. And in the end, sometimes we don't always get all of our wishes fulfilled, but at least you'll know after working through a book like Claire's book that you've really covered all your bases, no stone unturned. And if it's there, you'll be able to hopefully get your hands on it. Claire, it's, it's a terrific book. It's called Family Tree Irish Genealogy Guide, and we'll have a link in the show notes to it. Thanks so much for being here on the podcast. Thank you very much, Lisa. That's very kind of you. In today's 101 Best Website segment, I've invited author and German genealogy expert James Beidler back to the show to talk about Gedbas website. Hi, James. It's good to be here, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, uh, we've been talking about researching our ethnic roots and a really cool website out there. And, you know, we never know whether to call it Gedbas, which is like you were saying, the German way of saying things, or Jedbas, which we think of Jedcom. But all I know is I have found some pretty cool items here uh, for, for my German ancestors using this website. So I'd love to have you introduce everybody listening to it. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to, because uh, it's definitely uh, underutilized by American genealogists. Gedboss, as Germans typically do, they don't create acronyms quite the way we do. It is short for uh, Genealogische Datenbasis. <laughs> oh. So G- so G E and D and B A S together, and what it is, it's uh, it's their version of uh, public family trees is what is what it amounts to. And if I can back up for a second, Gedboss is part of the larger German mega site that goes by either genealogy.net or compgen.de, and it's somewhat the the, the brainchild of uh, Timo Kraka, who I believe uh, he said to say hi to you, Lisa. So yes. I, I you, you've interviewed him before. He's wonderful. Uh, yeah, and it, uh, it, it's kind of like genealogy.net or compgen.de is kind of like the old American roots web, kind of used to be 10, 15 years ago, in that there are a lot of local and regional societies that uh, have their websites on this mega site. And then it's just a, it's just kind of a conglomeration of a lot of different databases that can be very helpful. It's based in Germany, and least uh, it has a uh, a gazetteer where you can type in a, a town name and uh, it'll find it for you. Uh, they're doing a transcription project of what tombstones there are in Germany. And and many other features, but I don't want to get too too far on a tangent off of Gedboss, because uh, Gedboss is their their public family tree tool. But the other uh, aspect of it that's quite helpful to American genealogists is if you do a search of of Gedboss, you're also doing what they call their meta search of all the other databases that are on genealogy.net. 
So uh, that's a key a key factor too. As far as the the public member trees, there are some 16 million people who are who are represented on on these trees. 16 million individual people in about six million families, and there are thousands of thousands of files that these are these are organized in. You know, some people just just like in America, some people are what we might call ancestor collectors and quite mm-hmm. prolific, uh, and others are, are uh, you know, just kind of doing, doing their own family. And you can do, like I say, a, a simple, simple search, even by, uh, by just the surname that you're looking for, or you can put in a surname, a first name, and even a, a place name, if you wish to, which, you know, especially if you've got a German name like Miller or Schneider or Schmidt, you know, one of those very, very common occupational names, you know, that you can limit it to a certain, certain town or certain area. So, you know, that's very helpful. And uh, when you do a search and then get to the record level about a, a particular individual, it does have the email of the submitter. Uh, of that information so that you can uh, initiate direct contact if you if you wish. Well, you know, I know that when I went to this site, you were talking about um, place names. Um, mm-hmm. My great-grandfather is from a very small village that just isn't even called that anymore. And he was very specific on his immigration records. Mm. When I went in and did a search, there it was. And it was amazing how it led me to other records. It was just one of the few places where I really immediately seemed to be able to drill down to get back to this yeah. little town that you never hear about yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah, there's there's an awful lot of uh, of information there. Uh, as you say, many, many times about the extinct villages, essentially, uh, small towns, and that that again like you're saying you can uh, control it down that way if you wish which is of course a good way to do it because many many times you'll find people maybe not your direct line ancestor even but people related to them or people from the same village you know often came together and you'll you know a lot of times end up with kind of a bonus family yeah. <laughs> coming out of a search like that well, i noticed that when we get there that there is a place to log in and register new. Uh, will people need to get a guest account, or can they go in here and start searching without it? You can just go right in and search without any login whatsoever, and that goes for both. Uh, well, for this meta search that that will be performed if you go into the to the records. I mean, basically everything is accessible to you to look at. Now, if you want to post a family tree or on one of the other parts of genealogy.net or uh, discussion threads, if you want to do that, then you have to get a free login. But it's, you know, it's no cost, no must, no fuss, you know, just the, just the usual, you know, type of create username and password, and uh, you're pretty much ready to go. Right. And you don't have to be concerned that even though this is located in Germany, this is where it's originating from, you're still going to see the menu items in English, which is great. So you'll be able to um, navigate your way around and you will get into some German uh, language items. But from there, you know, you get a sense of where you are and the menus certainly help. 
And we all know that there are lots of help out there also just using Google to translate things. So, well, yeah, I was, I, and you know, you're, 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 you're the Google translate expert. <laughs> so I don't need, I don't need to tell, tell you anything further, but for the audience's reference, yes. Well, as, as far as the site as a whole, genealogy.net, not everything is in English. You know, I, I, in my, my recent book, Trace Your German Roots Online, I, I say there are three, there are three types of German-based websites. There are ones that are only in German. Uh, there are ones that have a full English translation tool right on the site. And then there are others that translate some of it, but sometimes just give you the executive summary. And genealogy.net is in that third category. So yes, there are times when you're going to be confronted with German at the get-go, and then we'll uh, just need to use Google Translate to get a full English version. Right. Well, this is great. I mean, I really encourage everybody to give this website a shot. And as you can hear from what Jim is telling you, you know, it's very accessible. There's lots of great data from just individual genealogists, just like you, but maybe over in Germany, who are doing research. And I know that Timo does great work over there with all the the German genealogists. So um, head over to it. Now, let's see here. We've got genealogy.net. But you can go to let me pull up this um, what, what do you think? Now I'm pulling up uh, compgen.de. That's the German version. Where do you suggest they start as far as a URL? Oh, I, I would suggest they start with genealogy.net, but just realize they may, if, if, it's, if it's purely in English, that they may want to go to compgen.de, not for dead boss that we're talking about, but to get all of the features. For instance, another one of the good features is they kind of have a, a primer or wiki on different regions and states of Germany. And most of that is German language in its native form uh, on their site and that you'll need to use Google Translate on. And, and I think for most of those entries, there's no English version at all on, on their website. Right. So you've got to use Google Translate. Yep, it'll work. And you can get it on your phone as well. So okay, I've got it here. Jed Boss, G-E-D-B-A-S dot genealogy dot net. And all of the connecting websites will have links in the show notes that you guys will have everything that you need. Jim Bidler, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you at upcoming conferences and certainly having you back to the podcast. Thanks for taking time out. You're very welcome, Lisa. See you down the road. With the recent uptick in attention to DNA and genetic genealogy, some folks wonder if whether as a genealogy community, we're selling our soul to follow the latest fad. Well, here to talk more about that and the future of genetic genealogy is our sponsor for this episode, Thomas McKenty of DNABargains.com. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Lisa. Wow, DNA has really taken things over. I'd love to know how do you see DNA impacting genealogy so far? Well, I want to use the analogy the same way social media did about six, seven years ago. It's a wonderful welcome mat. We have a lot of people coming in, but you know what? We don't want a revolving door. We don't want people to say, oh, I've done DNA uh, tests. I know my ethnicity. I'm done with my family history. We want them to stay in the sandbox, and we've got to keep them there. 
And so that's really important. I tell you, when I travel and, you know, I travel a lot speaking, I go to the airport, I talk genealogy. The first thing out of someone's mouth is, oh, I've seen the ad for Ancestry DNA on TV. I'm really interested. And so we know it's bringing people in. And look at the numbers. You know, it's amazing. Eight, nine million people so far have tested, they estimate. But the thing is, I think we need to right now focus on, you know, what are we going to do to keep these people in the area, in the community? And also important, Lisa, is sharing, getting on there and looking for matches. Because if you've done a test, it serves no good to the community if you're sitting there and sort of hoarding that information and not sharing it. Oh, so true. And I think your analogy of the welcome mat is perfect. That really is what it is. It's bringing so many people. What do you think the future focus needs to be? I think the future is going to be on definitely education. I'm seeing an uptick in sales on uh, webinars, on guides. You've seen that. You sell some great guides and some great materials on DNA. And so that that's really important. Uh, and Shop Family Tree has wonderful stuff. The new book by Blaine Bettinger on genetic genealogy. I mean, the education is key. And knowing the difference between an autosomal test and an X mitochondrial and an uh, Y DNA, I think that's really important. And then we need to get people to basically start doing the matches, getting out there and connecting with other people. I so agree. So it sounds like over at DNABargains.com, you're trying to make a resource available to folks. Tell us about that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the thing is, we know genealogy can get expensive if if you want it to be, but also DNA. The DNA test prices have come down. But listen, I just found out Family Tree DNA raised their usual $79 Family Finder up to $89. And and that just really surprised me. But guess what? We just found a Groupon coupon where you can get it for $56. I mean, so those are things I go out every day and I look for these bargains and I work with the vendors to say, hey, can you add free shipping? Can you do this? Do you have a special promo code? This way, we can get you the DNA resources and you can start testing. Test those older relatives. or They're the first priority. And then start using all these DNA resources. That's the goal of DNABargains.com. If you listening are ready to jump into DNA testing, or maybe you already have, and you want to make maybe some real progress with your family history research, go check out Thomas's new website. It's dnabargains.com, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you. Scotland's colorful history and efforts to preserve their heritage is really a boon to many family historians with Scottish ancestry. And if you're one of the many descendants of the 1.5 million Scots who immigrated to the Americas, then you can learn how to find your ancestors before they ever left Scotland with the four-week course at Family Tree University. It's called Scottish Genealogy Research Strategies. And today, we're going to kickstart your Scottish research with some strategies from that class with the Family Tree University Dean, Vanessa Wheeland. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? Doing good. I have no Scottish ancestry, so I'm pretty clueless in this area. But I know that this is a really rock solid course. And I'm hoping you've got some strategies to help those who do have Scottish ancestry. What's some of the strategies they use in the course? Well, we do have some great strategies in this course. Um, One of the first things that comes out that's really interesting to me is that 
civil registration didn't actually start in Scotland until 1855. So if you're researching before that date, which is, you know, relatively recent in genealogical terms, um, you need to look at the old parish registers. So before 1855, the old parish registers will be the primary place that you're going to get a lot of records for baptisms, marriages, and burials. So you'll get very little information from the old parish registers, but don't let that stop you. There are some interesting information you will find in each of the records. For example, documenting the birth was not the responsibility of the church. They recorded the baptisms because for them it wasn't about the birth of the baby. It was about the religious aspect of it. On those records, at times you'll get the names of both parents, but you're more than likely also going to only get the father's name. You'll get the date and parish of the baptism and the name of the witnesses. Now that can be helpful in the long run as well. With marriages, the interesting thing with this is the crying of the bands. Uh, the intention of a couple to marry was announced from the pulpit for three consecutive Sundays prior to the marriage. So this was standard practice in the Church of Scotland at the time, and the bands were generally proclaimed in the parish church of each partner, which led, well, it can lead to confusion, causing people to think their ancestors have been married twice, once in each parish, but in fact, it is the date of the crying of the bands, not the actual marriage itself that is being recorded. So this is the announcement of the intention, which I assume was to kind of uh, ferret out if somebody had an objection or had a knowledge of the fact that one of them was not in a position to get married. So yeah, that's really interesting. It could lead you to think that it was happening in both places, but <laughs> but no, it's really just the announcements. Exactly. So, and, and it should not be mistaken for the date of marriage itself. Um, so I think that's the biggest part of that. And then, of course, burials, rather than death records, you're going to get the records of the statement about a rental of a mort cloth for the dressing of the coffin. So, And this is often included in the financial records of the parish. So I always found that interesting. Oh, yeah. um, and then the burial records are important since they were there were very few Scots that were of a stature where they could afford a headstone. So you won't find a monumental inscription um, potentially for most people, but you'll want to look at those financial records to find the, out about the burials. Yeah, that's really key if you don't have uh, the, the tombstones. So great. So this is the religious records that we're talking about in those old parish reg- registers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, like I said, I don't have um, ancestors from Scotland, but I Uh, My husband has quite a few in England, and I've heard a lot about the British home children. And it was interesting, you were telling me that those also happened from Scotland. There were children sent over to perhaps Canada from Great Britain. Tell us about, because I know you guys touch on that in this course. Absolutely. We do touch on the British home children. And for anyone not familiar, that's between 1869 and the Great Depression, over 100,000 children were sent to Canada from Great Britain as a whole. That does include Scottish children, Welsh children. And the idea behind the scheme was to alleviate the number of poor and destitute children who were living in workhouses where they were separated from their families. So they were transferred from these workhouses to children's homes and then sent to Canada to work on farms as indentured servants. The interesting part of this is the very young children, infants, toddlers, preschoolers, or what we would consider preschoolers these days, were often adopted out to families in Canada 
and children as young as six were sent to work on the farms. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, I know there's been a lot of controversy. In fact, uh, in February of this year, I think the the government actually announced an apology about it. And, and there's been a lot of reporting on the fact that some people had uh, terrible experiences, some people had wonderful experiences, and it was just so hit or miss. And I think so many people just didn't even uh, realize what children faced or what became of them once they they got to Canada. So it's definitely if that's in your family history, I mean, that's something that you'll definitely want to look further into. Absolutely. And it's an interesting thing to look back on and and to think that, you know, this was something that happened. Um, You know, going from workhouses and children that young working on these farms, girls worked as domestic servants, boys as farm laborers. Can you imagine being six years old and working on a farm at six years old. Exactly. And yet they were plucking them off the street, you know, where they were so concerned that they were living on the street. So it's, you know, you, you hope that they had a better life, but it sounds like in many cases, they did not. So uh, it's a it's a really compelling story. And really, that's the thing about family history is that you don't really know the story until you dig into it. And even what you hear about in, in the press, you know, your ancestor's story is so unique. So from Scottish names and locations and historical events that that triggered immigration to the types of records that you can expect to find. All of this is going to be covered in the Scottish Genealogy Research Strategies course. And of course, we'll have a link to that Family Tree University course over in our show notes for this episode. Vanessa, thanks so much. Great talking to you. I'm sure we will talk to you again. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, my friends, it's time to stop by the publisher's desk and say hi to Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Hey, we've been talking about researching your heritage. And I know that uh, occasionally, as busy as you are, you get a chance to do that as well. Uh, you want to toss in, do you have any personal stories of your own of, of research that you've done that have, has taken you kind of over the pond and what you found? Yeah, well, that's been sort of my favorite discoveries that I've made in my research is being able to really solidify that connection of when an ancestor came over from the old country and started their life in America. So there's lots of examples, but the most recent example and kind of a fun one, um, I actually found um, on my Dolan side, which is actually my husband's line. Um, found the Dolan's link back to the old country in Ireland. Wow, that is so cool. And you know, Irish research is is a challenge. But you found, was it naturalization records? Yeah, in fact, naturalization records have been a really great resource for me personally in making that link back to the old country. So of course, depending upon um, when your ancestors came over, there'll be varying degrees of specificity on the naturalization records. Obviously, the older they are, the less information and the more spotty they tend to be. But I've had really great success in being able to pinpoint a specific place of origin for my immigrant ancestors um, on a naturalization record. And that's the key. That's what we keep hearing from everybody is that having that village of origin is really the key to be able to take the next step into other types of records. Exactly right. So with that village of origin, you have a place to pinpoint to look for, you know, all of those good vital records overseas, as well as 
um, other type of records. And it's probably worth noting here, um, as we're talking about naturalization records, a little bit about uh, that process to give people some guidelines for what to look for. So don't forget, naturalization was a two-step process. So um, after an immigrant came to America and they wanted to become a citizen, they would file their first papers, which is the Declaration of Intention to become a citizen. And then after all of the um, requirements had been met, including the residency requirement, then they could file their final petition for naturalization or the second papers. And I've found that both are really useful, but I've actually um, found those specific towns of origins on both. So it's worth checking all of the paper trail to make sure that you can um, exhaust every clue and find everything there is to find. Yeah, I totally agree. And I have found in my own research that because there was such a long residency required, that people often moved. I know my great-grandparents did. They filed in Illinois in a county there, but then he refiled again years later in California and then was able to complete the process. So there could be multiple versions of applications. And considering the time frame in between, you could actually find different bits of information. That's exactly right. So in the case of my Dolan family, um, I was able to track down the uh, declaration of intention or the first papers for Owen Dolan, who is my husband's great grandfather. He's actually the namesake of our son, Owen. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really cool. Um, we didn't actually know that when we chose that name for our son, but um, we found him and it seemed like the perfect fit. So we stuck with it. And Owen, the uh, ancestor, actually came to this country in 1889. And um, the Declaration of, of Intention says that he was color white, complexion fair, height 5 feet 3 inches, weight 120 pounds, hair color brown, eye color blue, and he, I was born in the village of Cloher, County Mayo, Ireland. So we had known that County Mayo before. But we didn't know the village of Clover. So, of course, the first thing that I did was I went and I looked for it on Google Maps. And it's this tiny speck of a town that has hardly anyone living in it now. Um, So that was real exciting. Um, Definitely will be researching more about that village. And um, also found when he came over specifically on the 18th of February, 1889, And the vessel on which he came so that I was able to actually look up that immigration record like five minutes later and actually got a picture of the ship to go along with it. So that was really amazing. It is. And it's amazing how it's changed, how quickly you can put your hands on that kind of additional information, more so than we could have 20 years ago. It's pretty, pretty cool. Well, I love it. And I love that it's a it's a personal story and one that that uh, leaps right back into your modern life with your own son. How how wonderful that he has a, a namesake, you know, out there that and you didn't even know about it at first, did you? No, we didn't. Um, it was something, of course, my father in law knew yeah. um, his, his grandfather, but my husband and I were just picking out sort of Irish sounding names that we both liked. And then um, in the course of doing some work for Family Tree, I found these records about the Dolan family and said, hey, this is actually perfect because this is your great grandfather. Oh, how awesome. All right. Well, it's been a wonderful wrap up to a a terrific episode. I hope everybody's enjoyed digging into their ethnic heritage. And Allison, thank you so much for sharing your own story too. Thank you, Lisa. 
Thanks so much for joining me for this May 2017 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. You'll find the show notes with everything that we talked about in today's episode, including the website links over at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website. It's called genealogygems.com, and there you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes. And we have an app for that. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Our sponsor for this episode is DNABargains.com. Are you finally ready to jump into DNA testing and genetic genealogy? Do you want to make some real progress with your family history research? The choices can be confusing when it comes to selecting the right DNA test. Plus, do you really know how to get the most out of the test results once they come in? Check out the new site, dnabargains.com. It offers solid advice on DNA testing vendors, the latest DNA and genetic genealogy news, plus special coupons and promos to save you money. That's dnabargains.com.